Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. And there is our impeccable news break at the top of the hour. (laughs) All right, here we go. Uh, This is our second hour of Interpreter Radio. Terry Hutchison in studio. John Gee with us via phone. We're thrilled to have John here. I'm Martin Tanner. Interpreter Radio is your opportunity here from LDS Scholars talking about a number of different topics. Come follow me every week and also scholarly areas. And this particular hour, we are focusing on the Book of Abraham. Why? Because John Gee, who is with us, has a PhD in Egyptology from Yale and is, in my opinion, the most knowledgeable guy about the Book of Abraham, bar none. And so we're thrilled to have him and his expertise with us. John, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me and for that uh, overflattering introduction. I don't find it overflattering <laughs> at all. <laughs> anyway, we're thrilled to have you. It's good to be with you again, John. Good to be here. So let's uh, sort of set this up with a short introduction because I'd like to get into the meat of things uh, rather quickly, and that is that over the last 30 years, I have heard dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, firsthand stories and emails from people who have said, I lost my son or I lost my daughter to stuff out of, you know, in the 90s, it was Gerald and Tanner, Sandra Tanner's stuff or somebody else's stuff on the Book of Abraham. And more recently, it is internet stuff. And the internet has all kinds of things that are inaccurate about the Book of Abraham. And I'm hoping, John, to elicit from you tonight some of the misinformation and correct it uh, about the Book of Abraham. And maybe one of the very basics is something that we can start off with, and that is the one that you hear all the time phrase something very close to, well, we know Joseph Smith wasn't a true prophet because we've found all of the Joseph Smith papyri, and it doesn't say what he says it did. And there are so many problems with that, but but let's talk about why everything hasn't been found and what has been found and the implications of it. Maybe we can start there. Uh, yeah, good place to start. Um, so this is curious because um, I've even seen Egyptologists, other non-Latter Saint Egyptologists, even ones hostile to the Church saying that Joseph Smith had other papyri that we don't have. Um, so I think that's the the idea that we have everything doesn't work historically. And we can, years ago I, I put together what all the 19th century eyewitnesses said about the papyri and compared them 
with the physical fragments and what we know about papyri and came to the conclusion that we just don't have everything that he had. And the fact that you even get some uh, non-Latter Saints Egyptologists in their attacks on the church saying that um, strikes me as at least a little bit of a self-contradiction. <laughs> so, John, where do we where do where can somebody go to find that 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 uh, project that you did with those uh, uh, project non LDS yeah, Egyptians? No, oh, no, the non LDS Egyptologists are out there. I um, these are Egyptologists aren't necessarily well informed on the church. And so they're not necessarily consistent in what they say. So in one place they'll say we don't, in other places they admit we do. Uh, but this is there's some of that in print. But my own project on this was published in the Richard Lloyd Anderson Festschrift called The uh, Disciple as Witness. And uh, <clears throat> you can find it on... I think on Scholars Archive. Yeah, just uh, dot edu. Yeah, just just, um, just for for those who are listening, the Scholars Archive is where a lot of the old farms material has been placed at BYU. And the easiest way for me, I usually find it is just go to the author, which would be John Gee, and or Richard Anderson, and and look it up. And they've got it all online. You can get it in a PDF or or look it up for yourself. Thanks, John. Yeah. And the article is called Eyewitness and uh, Eyewitness Hearsay and Physical Evidence of Joseph Smith Papyri. Um, I put it in, in the Feshrift um, in part because Richard Lloyd Anderson had been one of my teachers, but he also taught me the distinction between, because he was trained as a lawyer before he got a PhD in ancient history, and the difference between eyewitness and hearsay evidence. And so since we have uh, two attorneys here, you can correct me if my understanding of it is wrong. But he said that in a courtroom, you're not allowed to introduce hearsay evidence. Witnesses are supposed to say what they know firsthand. And that hearsay, something that you heard somebody said that somebody said is not admissible as evidence. Um, and so in historical writing, when people are writing about the what they see, there are some things where they are, I, when they're writing about the, the papyri in the 19th century, sometimes they tell you what they saw. In that case, they're an eyewitness. Other times they tell you what they heard Lucy Mack Smith say that Joseph Smith said that or that was on the papyrus. That's hearsay. That's not admissible. When you look at the eyewitness evidence, then it's very clear and consistent. Sometimes it's a little enigmatic, but you can, if you look at what they actually can say, so, for example, when Charlotte Haven says that Lucy Mack Smith she reports that Lucy Mack Smith said that Joseph Smith said that there was Sanskrit on the papyrus. That's hearsay. 
But when she says that they were long, there was a long roll, that's eyewitness. So you can believe her when she says that there's a long roll. There must be a long roll. Um, well, John, and, and I would just indicate that, first of all, we're not in a court of law. But second, I, I think there are exceptions to the hearsay rule, particularly when people are dead. And so I think in this case what, what would be best to do is exactly what you've done, and that is to prioritize the statements in certain categories. And obviously yeah. the eyewitness statements are the best. And then you go through varying degrees. So if somebody overheard somebody say something, that's one. But if it's Lucy Mac Smith said Joseph Smith said, that's two. And then that, the farther out you go, the less reliable that testimony is as you're weighing the evidence in total. Let, right. And let they me, did something similar to this with the Joseph Smith um, manual and the old Priesthood Relief Society manuals um, because they'd tell you they'd rate the quality of the reported uh, quote of Joseph Smith. So you, anyway, Martin, I think I interrupted you. Sorry no, you're, you're, you're great. That's, that's the uh, ch- chance you take or the risk you take when somebody's by phone and somebody's in studio. We're, one of the things I wanted to bring up is, is a great paper you uh, wrote that was published in 2008, it's in Volume 20 of the Farms Reviews. It's, it's about the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith papyri. And you point out in there something uh, that we've discussed here a little bit, and that's the eyewitness uh, statements of people back then. And I want to make this real concrete for listeners. I, I have, and I'm sure you have seen many times, John, the recovered 1966 Joseph Smith papyri. And if you lay all of those out on a table and stretch them end to end, you've got four feet, five feet. I mean, there's not that much. There's a little bit, but it's not that much. And the descriptions and the fragments that we have, you you have shown are from at least five different rolls of papyri papyrus, and they were long, according to the earlier accounts, maybe even 100 feet long. Well, yeah, we, so uh, I'll give a brief summary on that. So I, um, at one point, we, it really looked like there were, there were five rolls. Um, since then, some new evidence has come to light, and we have to drop that to four. Okay. Um, but there, and so, but we know there are at least four rolls. Um, and, uh, then, and the estimates on the length vary. And so, so there's been some back and forth on that, but one of the latest, um, so there are some assumptions. So, you know, Friedhelm Hofmann, who originally developed the formula for calculating the roles, still stands by that. Um, he's a good scholar. He knows what he's doing. There are a couple of, um, but one of there are a couple of problems with the theoretical role. So, it, so it gives you, it's a guess. Um, and the best stuff that we've got is actually the eyewitness statements, which unfortunately 
are not specific on the length. But they do say it's long, and it's hard to imagine that the fragments that we have, which were fragmentary when they were viewed back then, in fact, already mounted in frames at the time, people say that there was a long roll. Um, So they're not the long roll. And um, there are lots of twists and turns in uh, in the scholarship and on calculating them, we still know that there are long rolls. We've had to, we also have had a new historical source that comes out that lets us know that the, that none of the fragments we have qualifies as being part of the long roll. There you go. And uh, so and so if we have at most several feet, and we know from eyewitness accounts and further scholarly research that we had at least several dozen we have feet. A substantial, <laughs> we, we have a description of an intact papyrus roll with nothing missing. Yes. How about how long would okay. that be normally, John? Uh, well, that... So in the, the news recently, uh, and unfortunately they didn't have pictures, but uh, as you pointed out to me in the news just this last couple of weeks, they discovered a new uh, Book of the Dead role um, in Egypt uh, in one of these Saqqara mummies. Uh, sounds really exciting um, if you're a Book of the Dead nerd like me. Um but and they described it as um easily fifteen meters. So that'd be and so about forty five to fifty feet long. Yeah. And that's one they just discovered. So they can and that comes from about the same time period as the Joseph Smith Papyri. So they can get quite long, and this one is quite long and as I say, it would have been wonderful if we'd had even a small photograph of part of it. Um, but as I say, I'm, but, but we don't. This is a sort of nerd <laughs> thing that that I get interested in because I can read the stuff, and I've been a Book of the Dead specialist, and so um, I get excited about minuscule details that bore most Egyptologists and everybody else. Well, let me let me kind of summarize here, though, for the, the, yeah. lay, the lay people out there. There is zero chance that we have recovered all of the Joseph Smith papyri. As a matter of fact, yes. there is a huge amount of evidence, an insurmountable amount of evidence that shows that we have recovered a fairly small percentage because some of the eyewitness accounts talk about scrolls that when they were unrolled went through a couple of rooms in in the uh, um, mansion house there in Nauvoo. So they were really long, and we only have a little fraction of what originally was there. And so the statement to get back to the beginning that we've got all the Joseph Smith papyri, and they don't say what the Book of Abraham says— 
doesn't do much for the truth or for the facts because the facts are that we don't have everything and the book of abraham portion uh is probably not there so john that leads right me and, and an easy, go ahead sorry an easy proof of that is where's the original facsimile two and facsimile three if we've got it all where are those yeah so anyway you're uh Terry no uh, so that that kind of leads us into the next into the next question, John. Uh, a couple of things. I remember a long time ago you found uh, evidence of the name Abraham in some Egyptian writings that were unrelated to the Book of Abraham, showing that they did know who Abraham was. Yeah. Tell us a little about that, and then also talk to us, if you would, very quickly about this issue of by the hand of Abraham, because a lot of people say, oh, that's not something that would normally be in an Egyptian document. Okay. So, um, yeah, so many, many years ago, and I wasn't the one who first pointed this out, um, um, but James Cameron didn't do anything with it. He just assumed everybody knew about it. There there were a number of papyri found in an archive in uh, Egypt in the 1830s. They're actually found by the same expedition that found uh, the Joseph Smith papyri, but probably from a different tomb. Um, and the, there are a number of mentions, references to Abraham, as well as Isaac, Jacob, Moses, um, and as well as a lot of Egyptian deities. And the most prominent deity mentioned in any of the papyrus is Jehovah. Um, so this clearly speaks to a knowledge of Abraham, uh, at least some places in Egypt. Uh, further research has shown that uh, where these papyri were found, and so it's modern Luxor in that area, uh, during the Ptolemaic period, all of the well, a lot of the tax collectors in that area were Jewish. And we know this from some papyri uh, evidence. And we also have classical references, classical authors saying that they learned about Abraham from talking to Egyptian priests in that area. Um, so in the one case, you've got what we could say is Second-hand rumor, you know, uh, classical authors reporting that an Egyptian priest reports about Abraham. Uh, in other cases, we know that there were Jews in the areas. That's from the tax records. And then we actually have these documents from the same general area that the Joseph Smith papyri were from. And... Um, uh, at least the same general time period, they're both Greco-Roman, uh, that mention Abraham. So, John, and, where can people go to find these um, before we move on to the next question? Well, we gathered them all together and published them in a, an appendix to a book called Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham. 
and that provides translations of them. Uh, there are other places where they're published, but almost all of those you will find in the bibliography in the early traditions volume. And uh-huh. that was from a series so, called The Studies in the Book of Abraham that was put out by the Old Farms. And is, is that available in Scholar's Archive? I'm not sure. I don't think it, I'm not sure that it is. Um, I, uh, I'm not sure what the status of that is, but there are yeah. volumes around. Unfortunately, I think they're really the, it's out of print, and I think the volumes are really expensive, but a lot of libraries have them. Well, and so, w- w- yeah, we, we've been looking so, at that in another sidelight. So, anyway. Right. So, anyway, that it is available, um, and there are other places where you can get them. You can probably find a lot of them on papyrus.info if you know what you're looking for, but you're going to have to look in Greek. Um, so, uh, that's a tool that scholars use and a lot of the texts don't have translation. Um, so it is at least out there on the internet, whether or not it's, uh, in a form that the general public can get access to. Uh, again, I'd, I'd go to the book and, um, see if you can find a copy in a library someplace. Yeah. Thanks, John. Okay, and then the next one was uh, about him writing a book by his own hand, and I know you published yeah, on this. Yeah, this one this one's curious because uh, people say, "Well, um, these are Egyptian papyri; they're from the Ptolemaic period, and so that can't be Abraham's handwriting." But that's not what the text says. So the text says that this was called and this seems to be the ancient title, The Book of Abraham Written by His Own Hand Upon Papyrus. That's the ancient title of the book. And by his own hand here looks like it's a criticism, but is actually a support to the Book of Abraham. The phrase by his own hand in ancient documents, particularly ancient Egyptian documents at the time of the Joseph Smith papyrus, is a designation for of who the author is. So there, there are three ways that they designated it. They either say it was made by or by the hand of um, or written by, and that's who, how they designate the author. So it's the book of Abraham written by his own hand means it's Abraham's autobiography. And that's the way the, an ancient author would express it in a way an ancient Egyptian would express it. And, and it happens in a lot of contexts. If you said, we cannot accept this writing because Abraham didn't actually put stylus or pen to, to this sheet of papyrus from which we've got, uh, we got to throw out the book of Galatians because we don't have the original well, of Galatians with with Paul's right. statement there at the end either, and that's just, it's it's a silly argument. Right. So, well, not only Galatians. So Galatians says at the end of in Galatians 6, ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. Well, none of the manuscripts of Galatians 
are in Paul's handwriting, or none of the ones that we have. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that he didn't write it. But you should find the same thing in First Corinthians, the salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand. And then you also find it in um, in Second Thessalonians, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. And then in Philemon, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. So this is just a standard way of of expressing authorship. Yes. And so, and that's the way that an ancient author would express it, and that's the way that it would show up uh, in an ancient title or an ancient manuscript that just lets you know who the original author is, not describe who happened to write that particular copy of the text. And so rather than a point against the Book of Abraham, this is one for it. Great. You want to talk about some of the points that came up in that uh, series? Well, I think or? We can, we can, we, we've got a few more things to cover. So, okay. for example, John, um, in that series, you guys did another volume uh, that uh, talked about the Book of Abraham's view of the universe. Um, so, yeah. So, um, the, one of the main arguments against it, against the Book of Abraham, is that it has a Newtonian view of the universe, and obviously that didn't come till the time of Sir Isaac Newton. I'd I just say on a sidelight, uh, I've been fascinated by a book that came out about four or five years ago on Isaac Newton called Priest of Nature. And in a sense, uh, it's, it's written by the guy who's been in charge of the Newton papers for a long time, and... Isaac Newton spent as much or more time at the end of his life writing on the scriptures and studying the scriptures than he did on his mathematics and calculus. And yet that's yeah. been totally ignored by the academy. One of the things that Newton came to on his own was that the doctrine of the Trinity he felt was a blasphemy and that it was one of the biggest lies perpetrated on the human race and that God the Father and Jesus the Son were two separate and distinct individuals, and yet the Son was divine. And uh, just some yeah. fascinating things about that. So uh, that's just a sidelight about Isaac Newton for the listeners who really want to dive into the weeds. But go ahead, John. <laughs> Gee, I'd like to dive into those weeds just because I, as an undergraduate, I stumbled across Newton's published work on the subject. And um he really he knew his patristics and he had read these stuff and he um and he has comments on the individuals who were responsible for producing the creeds doesn't have a very favorable opinion of it and because of that <laughs> doesn't think that the creed should be given any credence that that's an understanding uh, anyway but that uh, we won't go into the any into those weeds and John, further. we'll save that for our next time together on the air. How's that? <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, I'll have to brush up on it. Um, yeah, new, so Newtonian physics, of course, is what was available in Joseph Smith's day. And um, it's also... Um, it's Joseph Smith's day. It was also Copernican. Um, 
And so, and Copernicus is about a century before Newton. And so the, the, at Joseph Smith's day, the astronomy is heliocentric. That is, the sun is at the center of the universe. The earth goes around it. Um, and Newton provided some great advancements in our understanding of the solar system with and with his theories of gravity and everything. Uh, and that was what was available in Joseph Smith's day, but that's not what you see in the Book of Abraham. In the Book of Abraham, everything is is in reference to the earth upon which thou standest. And then they talk about the, everything else in terms of revolutions above the earth. And so they're revolving, and apparently revolving around the earth that Abraham's standing on. And each, as you go higher out of the earth, these various heavenly bodies have a longer period of revolution. It's not rotation, there's revolutions so are going around the earth. And um, so you, the moon, you know, has a period of 29 days and the earth of 365, or the sun, 365. Gee, I'm so used to doing it uh, Newtonian style that I even slip into that. <laughs> but the book of Abraham doesn't. And this, all of this, the Lord says he's giving this information to Abraham before it goes down into Egypt. Well, this matches the astronomy in Egypt, not the astronomy of Joseph Smith's day. And so all of chapter 3 in the astronomy would make sense to an Egyptian, but it makes almost no sense to us. And, and that um, is one of the points that, that I wanted to bring out here, John, is that this, instead of being something that's a point against the Book of Abraham being an ancient document and a genuine translation, is something very much in favor of it, because this is not something—this view of the universe is not something that Joseph Smith really could have known. How would he know how Egyptians— would have understood the universe. How would he have known that? Yeah. So this is all um, this is all something that's that is fits in with the ancient setting and the time that uh, Abraham lives in. Other points in there. So they talk about Shinaha, which is an actual Egyptian name connected with the sun and which the book of abraham says it is and that's a term that uh is created oh about 500 years before abraham lives doesn't get really popular until about 200 years before abraham lives and then after abraham's day disappears completely and so it's a term that fits with Abraham's day and not after and not a lot before. And so it's, 
it's one of those <clears throat> so it's another astronomical bullseye that um Egyptologists didn't even know about the texts that contain it until long after Joseph Smith's death. So this, this is this is something um, that's researched and documented in the third volume. I, I think it was the third volume of the studies in the Book of Abraham series. The well, the the geocentric astronomy was documented in the third one. The other material has um, I is documented in a couple of other uh, so an article I did in for interpreter and a uh, my book on uh, the introduction to the book of Abraham and then a um, a piece I published in an Egyptological venue. Um, about hypocephalized astron- astronomical texts. And, and that one was so, peer-reviewed by Egyptologists, right? Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, it, it's something that's <clears throat> known. And, and the key insight on that was actually published by Rolf Krauss in 1998. So um, this is stuff that uh, hasn't been known that uh, about that long. Um, so you, there was another uh, question I think that you had after the astronomy. Okay. So one last question, John, and then we've got an, an area of, that's come up recently on the Internet that you and I have talked about. But uh, one of the arguments or claims about the Book of Abraham is why is the King James language in there? Um, well, why not? <laughs> I think if, if, if we look at, um, if we look at the, the material that comes out of the, uh, critical text project in the Book of Mormon. I was, I was going to uh, say. And it works for, work from, from Royal Skousen and Stanford Carmack, who are, uh, both first rate linguists and, uh, of the linguists of the English language and uh, uh, Royal Skousen for years taught history of the English language. We've learned that most people aren't good judges about whether something is King James or not. And so if somebody talks about something being King James language and say either the book of Abraham or Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants or any of this other thing, uh, those are claims that need to be checked. Yeah. And, and need to be very care. People who attribute things to King James tend to be extremely sloppy. And as far as I know, no one has done a test of which stage of English the Book of Abraham is in. And since nobody's done that, nobody's in a position to say this is King James. That was going to be my next question, because the the intense scrutiny that Skousen and Carmack have put onto the Book of Mormon 
has revealed that it's not really King James. It's something else. And nobody has done that to the Book of Abraham. And I worry also with the Book of Abraham that we may not have, with, with the Book of Abraham, or Book of Mormon, you have 500 pages of printed text, 531, I think, in the current edition. So you've got a lot of text, and you've got a lot of, of data that you can use. I'm not sure we've got a large enough sample size for Book of Abraham. Mm-hmm. But that would be um, a question for them, wouldn't I, it? Right, it would be a question for them. Is this a large enough chunk of text? Um, but that's just an, an issue that's in that I know enough about to be in the back of my mind worrying. Mm-hmm. Okay, but um, I've usually had I've had so many other projects I haven't gotten around to to <laughs> trying my hand on, it, and I think Stanford, Stan Carmack, or Royal Skousen would do a better job. Um, we should follow up with them, Martin. We'll uh, we'll look at that. That'll be on our to do list. Let's let, Roy, let let Royal finish the critical text first. <laughs> there you go. Sure. And you know what? Nothing I suggested to either one of them would come up on the radar anyway. So they've got so many things to do. Um, so, John, we talked a little about a recent uh, series of, I guess, very short articles, blogs on uh, a website called Times and Seasons by a BYU yeah. professor named Jonathan Green. Now, Well, he's a former, a former. BYU okay. professor, but, uh, BYU-Idaho professor. But he raises a, some questions, although he's trying to do it in a very positive way. Yeah. Right, and, and I... Um, so in one sense, since installment eight came out, he said yesterday, um, and it doesn't look like he's done or laid out his full thesis. It's a little, it's maybe a little premature to critique it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, um, I have some questions about some of his assumptions, and. So I will at least state a couple of the the questions I have about some of his assumptions. So he, um, so I years ago I did a, a a paper on what was known about ancient Egypt and ancient Egyptian language in Joseph Smith's day, and I'd gone through all of these. Um, early deciphers and um, what was known about it. And I mentioned that uh, uh, a father and son, the Greppos, um, published a work summarizing Champollion for an American audience. That went through two editions, the first of which um, displayed their understanding of Champollion's decipherment. And then the second edition contained all the text but missed all the tables. Second edition, tamed, as far as I can tell, was more popular than the first, but then doesn't have the crucial information. Um, he uses that to argue that um, 
that Champollion's work was known. Uh, but there's a problem with that, and one of that is that um, Champollion has three books out on his decipherment before he died, and his brother kind of published his notes without quite understanding them. Anyway, uh, so the first one was the Lettre à Monsieur Dossier, and that one, he deciphers an alphabet. Now, people don't notice that he got one of the letters wrong. And, but if he only got one of the letters wrong is how good he was. Um, the second one was his Pisces. And that went through two editions. And he completely revised it between the two editions. The real decipherment is in the second edition of the Pisces. And and the difference was that he, between the first and the second editions, is that in between them he had gone down to Turin and gone through Dravetti's collection, and so had a whole mass of of inscriptions that he used to um, improve his decipherment. And the second is that thing he happened in between there is he came back from Turin and cataloged all of the Egyptian antiquities in the Louvre, which included both um, Trovetti's uh, collection and salts that ended up in the Louvre. And so he uh, he really refined his decipherment, and this is starkly noticeable if you compare the two editions of the Pisces. One of the problems I have with Green's work is he hasn't gone through any of that material. He's relying on it secondhand. He makes some assumptions about what was known in America um, without knowing what was known about the language in general, um, even among the really good ones, and then how meager what actually made it to America was. So, And then the other problem is there's an assumption about authorship of some of the manuscripts and he has assumed some authorship and I've raised objection to some of those assumptions already in print but not, again, not directly to, to him what, John but in other to, to publications to, to other people who have shared those assumptions yes right. yeah but but it's it's not fair at this point since he's not done and I'm not really sure where he's going with all of this mm-hmm. to judge what looks like eight sections of a paper you know or maybe <laughs> a chapter and a half of a book uh, to judge the whole argument because I don't have the whole argument. Sure. One, Does that one, sound fair? Yes, it's, that's entirely fair. One of the assumptions that many others have made <laughs> is that the uh, Kirtland Egyptian papers, or or what are sometimes called the uh, alphabet and grammar, which are neither an alphabet or really a grammar, <laughs> uh, yeah, oh. pe- people misunderstand what they are and claim that it was from that that Joseph Smith actually derived the Book of Abraham. Can you 
kind of talk about those issues for a minute? Yeah, I think so. What we have with the grammar and alphabet is about a dozen or so different documents. Each of these documents has a separate history. They are not, you can't pick up two of them necessarily and say, these two go together. Um, There are some that you probably can do that with. Uh, but each of them needs to be evaluated on its own. And one of my professors who actually did his homework, um, so he's not the one who's published on this stuff, told me one time at Yale that the the, the manuscript history and authorship of his documents were more complicated than anybody realized. And... Um, you know, I remember it was clearly it was right outside of of uh, the entrance to the library at the Yale Divinity School. Where he was telling me about this, um, and he'd clearly done his homework. He'd read through all. Of, he'd looked through really bad photographs uh, that were available, and he just said that those documents. But he knew stuff about how documents were put together and how to recognize different hands. He just said that these are really complicated issue. So each of them needs to be figured out first on its own. And then second, you need to figure out how individual documents may or may not be related. Now I've published some things trying to sort out some of this information. And one of the first things that, problems that we have is everybody jumps to authorship and if you look at the documents everything about them is is disputed except for the handwriting well and one of the documents even has a dispute about handwriting nobody knows who authored them there's a dispute about when they were written um there's how uh, we know something about pro we know provenance on them Sort of, but we don't know, there's not an agreement on a lot of things. And so when you try to build on that, you tend to take in all kinds of assumptions that aren't examined. And so since this is a complicated process, you need to be careful about sorting it through. And and if you're going to do it carefully on the authorship, you find that uh, there are clear evidence that not all of these documents come from the same mind. Yes. And, and go ahead. And so there are different authors to the documents and people lump them in and say, it's all Joseph Smith. Well, we can probably show that certain of them aren't Joseph Smith. And what, who, you know, what, whose mind is behind the documents is a key thing. If, and makes a big difference. If it's, if certain documents are Joseph Smith, then that makes a big difference in how you interpret the translation of the Book of Abraham. If they're W.W. Phelps or Oliver Cowdery or somebody else, then that really, they're not really good evidence to bring in for the translation of the Book of Abraham. 
And so because these issues are complicated, I, I look at, at some of the articles I've written on this in Interpreter, uh, one of them on fantasy and reality and the Book of Abraham translation, another one, Prolegomena, to studying the documents, uh, where I try to take you through the evidence, and it's uh, really technical, And but I'd urge people to be careful about what is being assumed and what's being asserted and what's that. I I think that's the kind of misinformation about it that causes the most confusion. And and in my opinion, that is the biggest uh, cloud surrounding people who 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 are concerned about it. Is that they're just they don't understand the technicalities. The answers are very technical. Uh, And the other thing is the question about the translation method, because. While we have lots of descriptions about the Book of Mormon translation, uh, the Book of Abraham we're a bit silent about. Right. And so we have one. Mm-hmm. We have one eyewitness translation. He said, "I, you know, I sat beside his as he translated the Egyptian hieroglyphs as he received it from direct inspiration from heaven." Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have the quote right in front of me, so that's a paraphrase. Yeah. Um, so. That's the only quote is that it was done by direct inspiration of heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't isn't a very satisfactory quote to some people. Well, it's good yeah. enough for me, but <laughs> well, it it also does something. It it sort of takes it away from being directly from the alphabet and grammar of the so-called Kirtland Egyptian papers. One of the things that was really enlightening for me on this was years ago when. Uh, Brent Metcalf and I can't remember who else acquired some of the original photos of of those that were just beautiful because this professional photographer with a fancy, fancy Hasselblad camera, Borg Anderson, took photos of those. And I looked at those and I said, Brent, the text was here first and then the characters were placed on there afterward. And, and he said – well, how do you know that? And you could see it because of which characters went over the lines and which didn't. And it it just – anyway, I don't know if you want to comment yeah, on any of that. But No, it, I, I remember those, uh, those images. And um, uh, I remember then the church gave us better ones. Yes. And, <laughs> there were two sets that Borg Anderson had. Well, no, but they actually gave us – so one of the things that the images don't tell you is the number of pages between sections because they only photographed the pages that had writing on them, and there were blank pages. And so one of the documents is uh, divided into 24 different sections by, by these blank pages between the pages that have writing on it. But if you're just looking at the photographs, those all run together. And so you need to know um, something. So that's one step removed from the from the first-hand evidence, and there's a key piece that's missing. So do do they have those blank pages in the... uh facsimile volume of the Joseph Smith papers? No. 
No, they do not. Okay. Can you so, so we we just have a few minutes left, John? Can you summarize yeah. for our listeners some of the things that are the most testimony building um, information that you want to share about the Book of Abraham, about why it's genuinely an ancient document, not some modern forgery? Yeah, well, the 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 problem with the Book of Abraham is everybody wants to talk about um, how we got it rather than what's in it. Uh, yeah. uh, in an ancient document, it's uh, – and this seems to be a trend, not only in Book of Abraham but others, where people would rather read about something than actually read it. And so the text of the Book of Abraham is the best witness to – uh, the world that it came from, and it's a world very different from ours, very different from Joseph Smith's. Um, so you have, um, you start off, the first ber- verse of the book of Abraham is an introduction to Abraham's biography, and it happens to match the only other Middle Bronze Age Syrian autobiography that we have. So the first four phrases have a match in the first four phrases in this other biography of, of Idrimi, and uh, that's remarkable. Uh, you have a mention of human sacrifice. Well, that's, um, that's something that we know uh, from Egypt better, because um, from, from that time period, we have historical evidence, we have um, the legal evidence or the law codes that tell you when you would do that, and we have archaeological evidence for it. So we know this is practice, and we know something about how it was done and what was involved. And we have later period rituals that describe how it was done. So this is really well attested. Um, then you go, you have the astronomy matches, you have the the covenants in Abraham chapter 2 happen to match the form of covenants that we know of from Abraham's time period. And they're missing things that show up in later time periods, like the Pentateuch. Uh, those are new developments at that later time period, but they're not in the book of Abraham, and uh, they're not in the documents from his day. The astronomy matches. There's a... Um, there's some Egyptian terminology that's uh, that we know is from Abraham's time period. There's a, an Egyptian play on words that shows up in Abraham chapter 3. Um, there are all of these... Uh, the creation accounts match the ones... Uh, match generally the, the type and the order of things that we find in creation accounts from Abraham's day. Uh, There are all these facets about the book of Abraham that match, that uh, don't match Joseph Smith's day, that do match Abraham's day. And so it matches better Abraham's day than it does Joseph Smith's. Well, that's you, that's the way I've always looked at the Book of Abraham, John. Only <laughs> you give a far more detailed and accurate summary. But 
but for me it's always been more about the in, what I call the internal the internal yeah. uh, consistencies rather than the externals and there's always lots of questions about that I actually have the same feeling about the book of mormon there's there's so many more internal consistencies that uh for me are very effective and obviously none of those outweigh the testimony of the spirit but those are important items for everybody to remember and to look at and to keep in mind as they kind of get down in the details that we've talked about earlier tonight. Yeah. Thank you so much, Thanks John, for, for, for being with us. It's, it's great to have somebody who really knows summarize some of these things for a lay audience. You're a gentleman to spend some extra time with us, John. And thank your wife, too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, John, and thank you, listeners. This has been the Interpreter Radio Show with John Gee, Egyptologist, Terry Hutchison, and I'm Martin Tanner. We're signing off. Thanks for being with us.